George, good morning. Can you hear us? I can indeed. Good morning. Oh, wonderful. Good morning. I hope you're feeling as good as you look. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> and apologies for my my slightly uh, unkempt backdrop. This is just all doovies and stuff to try and make the sound better. Oh, yes. Well, this uh, recording studio that I'm in here yes. is one of those places that look like, uh, well, in fact, they are a uh, lot of comforters and pillows piled up and <laughs> yes yes i think actors around the world in this time have been have been plundering cupboards and surrounding themselves <laughs> with these things to try and keep working aren't they george i'm so thrilled that you agreed to do this you are one of the most fascinating people on earth oh I my think. the life you've had i hope we can do it all justice i'm going to give it my best shot anyway but well, thank let's you dive for, in. let's do it david tennant does a podcast with George Takei. Now, George, I do not expect you to remember this, but we did meet briefly in 1992 when I oh, was really? in a, yes, I was in a production of Noel Coward's Hay Fever at the Royal Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh. Ah, yes, we saw that, and you came to see it. That's right. Yes, yes. Um, How did you know we were in the audience? Oh, because the whole place was giddy. With the fact oh that you were in the audience. That's the thing. You know, Edinburgh was a flutter that you had deigned to visit us and that you were in the audience for our show that night. Well, um, when I'm in Edinburgh, I'm all a flutter because uh, <laughs> I love It's one of my favourite cities I've heard in this, the world. Yes. You've spent a lot of yes. time there. Yeah. I discovered, I was about to say I'm a lifelong Anglophile, right. but I discovered when I did a play at the Edinburgh Festival that I am not an Anglophile in Scotland. No. I am a Britannophile. That's better. Yes, we prefer that. When I that. said Anglophile, you should have seen the Scottish hair stand on end. <laughs> yes, that would not have gone down well. I'm delighted that you're so fond of Edinburgh because I am too. And, and that night in 1992 was, I mean, nearly 30 years ago now. But it strikes me that 30 years on, you are no less recognisable or any more anonymous now than you were then, or indeed have been now for over 50 years. And I just wonder, I mean, that's a long time to be making people giddy wherever you go. I just wonder, are there days when you wish you could switch it off and be a bit more anonymous? Well, people weren't giddy back in the 1950s and 60s when I was beginning my career. I think it happened post-cancellation of Star Trek. Right. Because we were very low rated when we were on first run back in 1966, 67, 68, uh -huh. and we were cancelled in 69. We were cellar dwellers in uh, the uh, ratings. So therefore, when it went into syndication after we were cancelled, we were very cheap rental. Our fee was right. very low. And so the syndicators felt... Uh, that because it's so uh, economical, they put us on five nights a week, Monday through Friday. Right. And that is when we found our audience and the ratings soared. And you know the rest of the story there. Well, we quite. lived long and prospered. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to think of some uh, a show that has had the impact on the people who were in it, the people around it, and indeed the impact on popular culture that Star Trek has had. I, I can't think there's any equivalent show that, like you say, got cancelled after its third season. It's an extraordinary turn of events. It really is. But I think at the core, a show had a magnetic quality, and that is what Gene Roddenberry infused into the show. I had a conversation with them very early in the game, and he told me that he felt that television at that time was being wasted because the 1960s was a turbulent time in America. We had the civil rights movement coming to a head, led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. We had the uh, Vietnam War, which was dividing the United States, half of it pro-war and half of it for peace. And I was part of the peace movement at that time, too. Then the Cold War, two great nuclear forces threatening each other with nuclear annihilation. And none of that was being reflected on entertainment television. And he felt that this powerful medium had so much potential and none of it was being used because it's essentially an advertising medium. 
And so he tried to figure out a way to make those statements on television, and he came up with the idea of using science fiction as a metaphor, taking the story out of our times, but essentially keeping those issues intact and deal with the civil rights movement or the Vietnam War or the Cold War. The very setup of the show, the Starship Enterprise, where all the story took place, would be a metaphor for Starship Earth. And the strength of this starship lay in its diversity. People of this planet all coming together, not at war constantly, but coming together and working in concert, dealing with those issues and boldly going where no one had gone before. So we dealt with the civil rights issue where there was an alien uh, that was black on the right side and white on the left side. But he had an adversary alien who was black on the left side and white on the right side. Right. How, how ridiculous, and they couldn't get along. You know, right. Metaphorical a use of uh, issues of the time, taking it out of our time and putting it in another context and seeing how ridiculous that was. Yes. And uh, those who uh, got it, got it. Yes. And they became the uh, absolutely undying, fervent, loyal, faithful fans, generationally. I think we're into the third or fourth generation of Star Trek fans. Undoubtedly, yes. It's so lovely that it did indeed have that concept of inclusivity and diversity and clearly a a lesson from the 60s that we're still learning. When you look back at the industry that you started out in as an actor in the 50s, does it look very different to the industry that you're in now? It is a different world, totally different. My parents tried to advise me against uh, going into the business. Right. I was born and raised in Los Angeles with movie studios all around. You know, my father would take us on Sunday drives and I'd see the gate of uh, Paramount Studios and I'd say, Daddy, Daddy, park the car. I want to peer into the studio from those uh, graded uh, gates. So, you know, I grew up with movie uh, studios in my hometown And that was a burning passion. My father was in real estate, and uh, I think he wanted me to be an architect because uh, on those Sunday drives, he usually would take me to one of the great uh, grand uh, construction projects and tell me that this is where a great luxury hotel is going to be built. And sure enough, that's where the Beverly Hilton is. Right. <laughs> I got the hint and I began my college studies as an architecture student. I think deep down inside, he wanted to put out a sign that read, Takei and Son Real Estate Development. See, right. <laughs> I would design the buildings and he would develop them. <laughs> and were there any precedents around you? Did you know any actors? Did you, or, or was this, this just an idea that, that came to you? Only my high school actor friends. Right. (laughs) Same aspiring people. But the thing is, you know, Daddy did know best because uh, I was seen in a production of Bertolt Brecht's uh, Good Woman of Setsuan. And this casting director of uh, of integrity, I maintain, and he was casting um, an epic movie on Alaska. And there was a role for uh, a Chinese immigrant working in a fish cannery. And that casting director plucked me out of The Good Woman of Setsuwan and put me into this movie uh, working with Richard Burton. All my scenes were with this great Shakespearean actor from England. (laughs) And I was a theater student. He loved talking about himself, (laughs) about working with uh, 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 Sir Lawrence Olivier or John Gielgud, how he prepared for Hamlet. It was a heady, heady entry into uh, movie making. Wow. Wow. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. All of which comes, just to set this in a bit of context, of course, after what was the most extraordinary childhood that you had, which when I was reading about it, I could scarcely believe uh, happened within living memory. You were four years old, World War II was happening, and you were taken with your parents and your two younger siblings, Henry and Nancy Reiko, and you were put in an internment camp for Japanese Americans to sit out World War II. At that age, how aware were you of what was happening. I was four when Pearl Harbor happened, and I vaguely remember excitement on the part of my parents. They were visiting a friend, and we left hurriedly. And the next memory I have was I turned five years old on April 20th, 1942. And it was a few weeks after that, in May, when my parents got us up, the kids, and dressed us hurriedly, and uh, my brother and I were told to wait in the living room. My baby sister was a baby, and she was uh, in uh, the uh, crib uh, in my parents' bedroom. And so my brother and I were in the living room, just gazing out the front window, and suddenly we saw two soldiers marching up our driveway. They carried rifles with shiny bayonets on them. They stomped up the porch, and with their fists began pounding on uh, the door. We were petrified. The whole house seemed to tremble. My father came rushing out of the bedroom and answered the door, and literally at gunpoint, we were ordered out of our home. My father gave my brother and me small packages to carry, and he hefted two heavy uh, suitcases, and we followed him out, and we stood on the... uh, driveway waiting for our mother to come out and when she came out she was carrying our baby sister on one arm and a huge duffel bag on the other and tears were streaming down her her, both her cheeks the terror of that morning is is seared into my memory after pearl harbor was bombed the united states was swept up with war hysteria initially Young Japanese Americans, like all young Americans, rushed to their recruitment centers to volunteer to serve in the U.S. military. This was an act of patriotism, which was answered with a slap on the face. They were denied military service and categorized as enemy aliens. I was not an alien. I was born in Los Angeles. My mother was born in Sacramento, California. My father was San Franciscan. I was not an enemy. I was a five-year-old kid. And yet we were all categorized as enemy aliens. And on February 19th, which is a day that the uh, Japanese Americans remember, we'll never forget it, as a day of remembrance, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which ordered all Japanese Americans on the West Coast approximately 120,000 of us, and that included orphans. They raided orphanages. You know, I mean, what threat to national security are parentless babies? They raided orphanages and made an orphanage in one of the uh, internment camps called Manzanar. We were taken from our home first to the horse stables of uh, Santa Anita Racetrack, And we were assigned a horse stall to sleep in because the camps were still being built. Right. Can you imagine from a two-bedroom home on Garnet Street in Los Angeles, California, to a horse stall, all five of us? I mean, for for me, as a five-year-old kid, I thought it was fun to sleep where the horses sleep. Right. But for my parents, it was a degrading, humiliating, enraging thing. But they had guns pointed at them. They were forced. And we were there for 
a few months. And when the uh, construction was finished, we were packed into uh, uh, rail cars with armed soldiers at both ends of each car. And we were transported two-thirds of the way across the country to the swamplands of Arkansas. There were 10 camps altogether, all in the most desolate, forlorn places in the country. American citizens, innocent, had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. And I, as a child, I still remember the barbed wire fence that confined us, tall sentry towers with machine guns pointed at us. When I made the night runs from uh, our barrack to the uh, latrine, searchlights followed me. But the five-year-old me, I thought it was nice that they lit the way for me to pee. I mean, so my vantage point was totally different from that of my parents. I mean, for them, it was, I mean, such injustice, such degradation. And I remember when we were out of the camps and uh, I was a teenager, I wanted to know more about it. And I had many after-dinner conversations with my father. And I said, Daddy, why did you go? Why didn't you resist? Look at the African-Americans. They're demonstrating. He said, yes, you're right. But they were pointing those guns at me. I had your mother to think about. I had you, your brother, your sister to think about. If something happened to me, what do you think will happen to all of you? And I understood my father's horrible dilemma. But uh, the government was relentless in, in their insanity. A year into imprisonment, the government realized that there was a wartime manpower shortage. And here were all these young people that they could have had, but they had imprisoned as enemy aliens. How to draft enemy aliens out of a barbed wire prison camp and use them as U.S. soldiers. They had to have some rational reason, uh, despite the irrationality of the whole thing. Mm. They came down with what they call the loyalty questionnaire. Most, there were about 30 questions. Most of the questions were pretty innocuous. What kind of work did you do? How long have you been doing? Uh, what was your training? What's your education? But there were two questions that were absolutely mindless and, and turned all 10 camps into turmoil. Question 27 asked, will you bear arms to defend the United States of America? For my parents, they were essentially asking them to abandon their children and bear arms to defend the nation that's imprisoning their children. It was crazy. My parents answered no uh, to that question. Question 28, the next question, was even more insidious. It was one sentence, but with two conflicting ideas. It asked, will you swear your loyalty to the United States of America and forswear your loyalty to the emperor of Japan. The emperor of Japan were Americans. We didn't have a loyalty to the emperor. And for them to presume, just because we looked this way, that we had an inborn racial loyalty to the emperor was outrageously insulting or very imbecilic on the part of the government. How dare you assume that we have a uh, existing loyalty to the emperor. So if you answered no, meaning I don't have a loyalty to the emperor to forswear, that no applied to the first part of the very same sentence. If you answered yes, meaning I do swear my loyalty to the United States, that meant that you were confessing that you had been loyal to the emperor and now were prepared to forswear that and re-pledge your loyalty to the United States. My parents said, this is enough. We're not going to take this outrage. And they answered no to those two key questions. Right. And because of that, they were classified as disloyal. Disloyal. Because they were standing on principle. And what it said was, these are stupid questions. 
They have no understanding of what they're asking. This is outrageous. But because they were categorized now as disloyal enemy aliens, we had to be moved to a high-security segregation camp, which was in Northern California, uh, right by the Oregon border, a camp called Tule Lake, a lovely name for an ugly, ugly place. It had three layers of barbed wire fence, and would you believe a half a dozen tanks patrolling the perimeter? I mean, talk about overreaction. Those are expensive vehicles. They belong on a battlefield, not being wasted and, well, essentially goading people that they outraged with their stupidity. And, you know, it was really a horrible camp. So there are still Americans today that really don't know that shameful history of uh, the United States. And it's been my mission in life to raise this awareness. And uh, I have a book out now, a graphic memoir. I wrote an autobiography, uh, which was published in 1992, which sold very well. But this graphic memoir, which is written like a comic book, is essentially about my childhood imprisonment. We also developed a, a Broadway musical called Allegiance, In this musical, we first examine allegiance to a country, but also allegiance to family, and ultimately allegiance to yourself. And we uh, played on Broadway from uh, 19... I'm still... I'm I'm an oldster. I I can't help but say 19 to begin. Yeah, sure. It was uh, 2015 and 2016 on Broadway. But it's about the internment of Japanese Americans. When we uh, told friends that we're preparing a, a musical, you know, they would, uh, Japanese Americans, they would say, a musical? Yes. I mean, you're going to have singers and dancers? And I said, yes, we will. And they'll say, it's a drama. It's a dark drama. And I said, yes, but we also want to show the resilience, the fortitude, and the strength of the Japanese-American community to endure this kind of outrage. And uh, all these different venues, a Broadway musical, a um, autobiography, and now this uh, graphic memoir to uh, tell the story. And I thank you for providing me with this opportunity to share this uh, very shameful history of uh, the United States of America. It's incredibly shameful and a terrible injustice that was done to your family. And I as the father of young children, I can only imagine the, the terror that must have presented your parents with to be to be removed because all your assets were stolen as well by the absolutely by the right? they froze our bank accounts yeah and so my father couldn't do business he, he couldn't make the mortgage payment our home was lost everything they mm. stripped clean everything that they built up for the first half of their lives taken away from them. And when we were finally released after the end of the war, they gave each one of us $25 and a one-way ticket to wherever you wanted to go. Right. And my parents decided to go back to Los Angeles. And our first home was on Skid Row in downtown LA. So the terror and the horror and the anguish wasn't over just because the war was over and we were released. Mm. And I I remember that part more vividly than and more truly than uh, the uh, imprisonment itself. You know, I really do think I was blessed to have a father like my father. When I became an inquisitive uh, preteen and teenager, he spent hours with me. I'm sure I did. I made it very unpleasant for him. (laughs) We got into some heated, uh, uh, in fact, There's one conversation which still haunts me. Um, I said, Daddy, you led us like sheep to slaughter into into those camps. And suddenly the give and take of the conversation stopped, and he was silent. And I immediately knew that I had hit a nerve, and I felt terribly. And he um, looked up at me and said, he said, well, maybe you're right. And... He got up, went into the bedroom, and closed the door. I was devastated. This man that I love, who 
suffered so profoundly, so deeply, I had hurt him. And I wanted to go and knock on that door and apologize, but it was awkward. It was awful. And so I thought, well, I'll apologize tomorrow morning when things are more settled. And then tomorrow morning, it was even more awkward. And I never did apologize. And it haunts me. But despite those uh, very painful conversations, he still, you know, talked to me about the internment and explained to me that our democracy is a participatory democracy. And we have a responsibility to participate in our democracy. He said, the easiest form of government is a dictatorship because they do it for you and to you. The hardest form of government is a people's democracy because we have to take on that responsibility. You know, I had these conversations, after dinner conversations with my father, even uh, in high school, and I kept challenging him. You know, look at the African Americans. They're protesting, and yet they're not going anywhere. They're participating in a participatory democracy. And he said, let me show you how it's got to work. And one Sunday afternoon, he drove me downtown to the uh, Adlai Stevenson for President campaign headquarters. I listened to uh, Governor Stevenson's speeches on the radio, and he was moving and powerful. And he took me to that headquarter and put me in that environment with other people, passionately, passionately dedicated to getting this great governor of uh, Illinois elected president. And I understood what he was talking about. We have to participate. And from that point on, uh, I became active in uh, electoral politics. And the mayor of Los Angeles and I, uh, we got Mayor Bradley elected. Uh -huh. And he appointed me to serve on the uh, Southern California Rapid Transit District. And my father said, that's also part of participating, not just voting and not just campaigning and not just fundraising, but also to serve in appointed positions on boards and commissions. And that's the way to do it. And so, you know, he guided me through this process. And so via electoral politics, I became active in uh, social justice issues. I did a civil rights musical, which became a, a big hit in Los Angeles. We ran for 11 months, and that's a big hit in Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we, uh, we were invited to sing at every uh, civil rights rally. And at one of the biggest rallies that, uh, that was held in L.A., our keynote speaker was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Wow. And we marched into that arena together with him, and we sang our hearts out. And the greatest thrill was being invited to uh, meet Dr. King himself in his dressing room after the uh, rally downstairs. And... This hand of mine actually shook Dr. King's hands and shared a few words with him. And I, I tell people, for about three days, this hand did not get washed. Sure, I bet. It must have been terribly exciting then when, as, as a young actor, you go and meet Gene Roddenberry, who yes. talks about this show, which, yes, it's a sci-fi show and it's an entertainment show, but but part of his raison d'etre for doing it was to show a world where we would all live as one and there would be, you know, racism would be a thing of the past. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm imagining the kind of parts that were available to a young Japanese-American actor in the 50s were relatively limited in Hollywood. Would that be fair? Exactly. They were. Before Star Trek, what sort of roles were you uh, encountering? Well, I, I was lucky. Yes, most of the roles were stereotypes, mm -hmm. either the servant, or the buffoon, the comic character, or the villain, very often the villain. But because I got known as a, a trained actor, UCLA's Theater Arts Department, right. and my first gig was uh, a major 
feature film starring Richard Burton and Robert Ryan. Right, right. And I had uh, something of a mentor in the uh, casting director from Warner Brothers who uh, saw me at UCLA, Hoyt Bowers. I mm -hmm. owe a great deal to him because he was uh, spreading the word uh, on my behalf. It always helps to have someone in the industry, a casting director, saying sure. good things about you. Right, <laughs> right. Yes, yes. Well, you do get the part of Mr. Sulu and it is life-changing, presumably, but I guess you didn't necessarily know that at the time, or did you? Did it feel like when you got that part in that pilot, did you think, this will change my life? This is, this is where it all pivots. I understood that it was an incredible break for me because here was a show with that concept that we talked about, and here was a character who was a part of the leadership team a crack helmsman, the best helmsman in Starfleet. Mm. And at that time, there was this stereotype of Asian drivers being not very good drivers. Right. I was the best driver in the galaxy. Right. <laughs> and so many, you know, it was stereotype shattering and speaking English without an accident. Uh, accident. Without <laughs> an accent. <laughs> There might have been accidents <laughs> without an accent. And I knew that this was going to be a breakthrough and, and a series regular where sure. my face would be seen week after week after week. And after we were canceled daily, Monday, sure. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know. So I had no idea it was going to be such a uh, career-defining opportunity, but I knew it was a breakthrough part for me but also the philosophy of Gene Roddenberry. On Starfleet, there was this acronym, IDIC, I-D-I-C, which stood for Infinite Diversity in Infinite Combinations. And that was so important for America because that is our strength, our diversity. And here we were having the civil rights struggle and, and we're still having it today. Mm. Black Lives Matter, you know, mm. but it, dealt with our diversity being the strength of our starship or our planet, and to recognize that, to take the best of that diversity, and to be able to see that challenge from so many different perspectives, that is what makes us uh, creative problem solvers. And what did that mean for your parents, seeing you, you know, having had this awful injustice in your childhood and that extraordinary journey they must have gone on to build their life back up. And then for their son to go, I'm going to go off and become an actor, which must have felt <laughs> terrifyingly insecure and sort of not what he'd hoped for. But to then see you being, you know, absolutely okay and being on a network television show, was that, did they acknowledge that that was an exciting moment? My mother became my best publicist. Brilliant. She, uh, when I was to be on the air, she was on the phone with her list, like uh, Amanda in uh, The Glass Menagerie, right. uh, selling magazine uh, <laughs> subscriptions. She was on the phone calling all her friends, telling them that her son George was going to be on at... Eight o'clock, don't miss it, <laughs> Channel 4. <laughs> and my father was just beaming. He, he was so happy. In so many ways, that was for me fulfilling, to see my father be so happy and uh, to reveal <laughs> my checkered past. I did run for public office for a seat on the uh, Los Angeles City Council. And my father was so proud of my running, actively running for a, a public office. And I'm so glad that I was able to, and he suffered so much. Mm. And I was able to give him that joy of seeing his son, not only on television, but um, 10 years after we were canceled because of that incredible popularity by being on uh, daily, Paramount decided to go with a uh, feature film of, of course, uh, Star yeah. Trek. And in 1978, he became very ill. He was in and out of the hospital. And I really wished that he could have uh, been able to see the feature film. But he was in this hospital bed in 79, and he knew that the uh, film would be opening very soon. But he 
never lived to see Star Trek, the motion picture, but he passed knowing, and I'm sure he was so happy. Yeah. Um, so then, yes, uh, 10 years after the show is cancelled, you make um, a motion picture. It's a huge hit. You make another five over the years. Uh, Actually, and- six. Oh, yes. I did five as, uh, well, they kept giving us advances in rank. You know, I was lieutenant, and then I became a lieutenant colonel, right. uh, lieutenant commander, and so forth. But I was still at that same damn console, <laughs> pushing, pushing that same button saying, aye, aye, sir, warp three. And, uh, you know, my father told me to be an activist, <laughs> right. to participate. And I did that with my career as well. I said to Gene Rodberry, this is supposed to be a meritocracy. And... I'm supposed to be the best helmsman in Starfleet. How come I'm staying at the same console year after year yes. uh, with all these advances? Well, the advances started coming in the film. And finally, on the sixth, sixth film, I was no longer lieutenant commander. I was the captain of the starship Excelsior, yes. a brand new ship. Much bigger than the Enterprise, <laughs> much more powerful than the Enterprise. And there's that brand new, wise, calm, collected captain, Captain Sulu of the Excelsior. Nice. <laughs> You've been very candid over the years that although it was a wonderful time, there were tensions within your group of actors there. <laughs> it, it got more and more intense. Oh, did it? <laughs> How do I put it? It began from the TV series. There was one character whose charisma and whose mystery was like a magnet. It was Spock. Right. The strange alien with pointy ears. And that intrigued the audience. And women thought, I'm the one who can arouse him. (laughs) (laughs) And his fan letter count soared. But the... um, titular star was uh, his nibs. <laughs> Captain James <And> T. Kirk. <laughs> his fan letters were this many. Right. And Leonard's was that many. And that created attention. Right. That insecurity on the part. Every opportunity, you know, he thinks is an assault on his stardom. Right. <laughs> was it William Shatner versus the rest of the world? Yes, yes, yes. Right. But but <laughs> the rest of you were, were were a very tight team. Yes, we're we're I mean, you know, it's a a, a movie making, TV making, theater uh is all a collaborative teamwork. A good actor knows that a scene works when there's that dynamic going on with the the cast involved. There are some actors that seem to feel that it's a one man show. <laughs> right. And uh, so there, that's the source of uh, some tensions. Right, sure. <laughs> You've also been a pioneering activist and spokesman and ambassador for gay rights. I wonder if being an out gay man, presumably that's not something you could have considered at the start of your career. When did you realize you were gay? You know, there is no one point. I knew from childhood that I looked different. And for that, we were punished. We were put into imprisonment. When I was about nine or ten, I had the growing realization that I'm different in ways other than just my face. Right. The other boys in uh, junior high school, middle school, they call it now, would get all excited. There was a girl named Monica who was uh, (laughs) prematurely blossoming out in full womanhood. And they would say, wow, Monica is hot. She's getting breasts. (laughs) I I thought Monica's nice. What What are they getting so excited about? All the other guys felt that way, all my friends, and I didn't. And I didn't like to be different because 
we were punished for being different, looking different. Sí. And my difference was in the way I felt. When I saw Bobby, <laughs> he has such a cute smile, and they didn't think so. And so I, you know, there's no one point when you make that realization. I'm, I was different, and we were punished for it. But I'm different in other ways. And I didn't like being different. I started, I was an actor from a very early age. Yeah. And then I, but, you know, you feel very alone. I thought I was the only one who had those feelings. But then as you grow older, you meet other guys who tell me about this place where other guys like us gather. We have to go in through the alleyway. And on the street side, it's all painted black, a gay bar. Mm -hmm. And I heard that that's what they're called. But then one of the uh, older guys told me, even in a gay bar, you have to be careful because the police raided them and they would arrest everybody, march you all out and put you on in a paddy wagon and drive you down to the police station and fingerprint you. And then they'll take a picture of you and put your name on a list. If any of that was released, that would be devastating. You might lose your job. And certainly, I as an actor, mm. you know, that kind of people weren't hired by producers. Mm. And so I lived a double life. I was closeted. And... I have many relationships with guys. And uh, then I joined a, a gay running club because I, I love running. It's meditation. And uh, in that running club, we had uh, the best runner. And so I went up to him and asked him to train me for my first marathon. He trained me and got to know him well, and he's been with me for the last 34 years. Oh, what a lovely story. <laughs> we legalized it. <laughs> oh. uh, yes, you, you in, got married in 2008, right? Eight, yes. And you were the first same-sex couple to apply for a marriage license in West Hollywood. You made it a very, a very public event, didn't you? Did you feel a responsibility, because you were a public figure, to make sure the world knew what you were doing? It was before that that I came out. Sure. Because being closeted and being a civic activist, social activist, is a torturous uh, activity. There are these bold, courageous, self-sacrificing young LGBT people who sacrificed everything. I was clinging on to my career. They had given that up, some even their families, and they were there fighting for my equality. And I was together with Brad by then, and it was torturous. And then the AIDS plague hits, and friends suddenly get sick and, and rapidly start losing weight. I mean, they're skin and bone. I went to visit one of them in the hospital. There was a group of nurses in the hallway just chit-chatting. And I went in, there he is in the fetal position and trembling and no cover. And so I went out there and said, you've got to do your job. They were completely ignoring him. I said, give me a blanket. I will take it into him. It was the same thing as our imprisonment the rest of America thought nothing of our... Well, there were people, bless their hearts. But here, even Reagan was uh, uh, ignoring the AIDS issue. And I saw the connection, how inhuman and how cruel government and government's influence on society or the uh, society's influence on, on uh, politicians can do such cruel injustices to suffering people and yet i was closeted 
because I wanted my career. And it wasn't until uh, 2005 when uh, the uh, California State Legislature, the People's Representatives, passed the Marriage Equality Bill. It was a landmark event. No other state legislature had passed such a bill. It needed one more signature, that of the governor of the state, who happened to be a movie star. Of course. And when he... Com- Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And when he campaigned for the governor's office, he campaigned by saying, I'm from Hollywood. I've worked with gays and lesbians. Some of my best friends are gays and lesbians. I mean, that uh, uh, prevaricating uh, campaign rhetoric. Mm. And I thought surely he would sign it having campaigned like that. But his base is the right-wing Republican Party. And when the bill landed on his desk, he vetoed it. And that got us, Brad and I, so enraged. I said, let's let's do it. And I spoke to the press as a gay man and blasted Arnold Schwarzenegger's veto. And from that point on, I've been out and loud and active as uh, uh, (laughs) lobbying for uh, gay equality. Did that feel like a real liberation when you managed to finally make that? I mean, it must have been scary, you know, but... Well, the, the thing that I feared the most, that I would lose my career, didn't happen. In fact, the very opposite happened. I got cast in more guest shots on television, not as a character. Well, as a character, because it wasn't really me, but the character was named George Takei, and he was gay. <laughs> right. A gay George Takei character <laughs> on Third Rock from the Sun, uh, Will and Grace, or uh, The Big Bang Theory. Right. It was liberating. <laughs> but the, the climate was set by those heroic people, the LGBT people that were out there campaigning when everything was against us. Yeah. There, there can't be a country in the world where people don't know Mr. Sulu and don't know you. And you've used that celebrity for your activism as well, haven't you? You've, you're not, you've not been queasy about stating your political stance. And some actors are, aren't they? Some actors think twice about that because they'll worry they'll alienate part of their audience or something. Was that something that ever gave you a cause for concern? You know, here again, I, I go by my father's philosophy. We are Americans. We participate in a participatory democracy. And that carries over into every aspect of our lives. Participating in a social justice campaign is that much more vitally important for me with my background. Those of us who were incarcerated in those camps go to what we call annual pilgrimages. But this year, because of this uh, quarantine, mm. everything has turned as you as we our conversations have been. It's virtual, mm-hmm. and they asked me to speak at. Uh, this year's virtual pilgrimage. I wrote uh, what you might call a poem. May I read it? Please, yes. I go on pilgrimages to mourn. I mourn for those good people who died behind barbed wire due to natural causes, cancer, stroke, diabetes. I go also to mourn for those who died behind barbed wire fence due to unnatural causes, who died of soul-crushing despair, of the hot fever of angst stifled, and of suffocation under the agonizing weight of oppression. I go to mourn the death behind barbed wire of the ideals of a land of democracy the rule of law, of due process, and the pledge to liberty and justice for all. I go on pilgrimages to remember the struggles since to reinstate those noble ideals. And I go on pilgrimages to hope that this young generation of Americans continue the struggle, because there is fight still to be fought to make those ideals shine strong and true and righteous. I go on pilgrimages 
to mourn and remember and to hope. Thank you. That's beautiful. Um, you've lived through such vast societal changes and you've lived through such a range of experiences in terms of your own liberty and identification. You have an objective view of the world that I think your extraordinary life is replicated by very few people. I wonder if you look to the future with optimism or with dread. I think the United States, after every cataclysmic event, have not only to survive and, and go uh, past it, but to be an even better America. If we set our minds to it as a society, as a planet, we can do it. And I'm sure that it's going to be difficult getting over this. There are still people dying in, in the thousands in the United States. But we will prevail. George, I could talk to you, I, I think, for a week. Uh, <laughs> I can't thank you enough. I really can't thank you enough. What a privilege well, thank and a you. treat this has been. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. What a very life engaging. you've had. What a life you've had. Amazing. Oh, don't please don't speak in the past No, tense. no, no. I love how I love that you're still fighting. I love it. <laughs> My grandmother celebrated and she li literally celebrated every birthday. She celebrated 104 birthdays. And I'm very competitive. <laughs> I intend to beat my grandmother. <laughs> I think you're destined to beat your grandmother. <laughs> I've got the genes, her genes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Amazing. My pleasure. Thank you. Are you sometimes, and I don't mean to be indelicate, but are you sometimes guilty <laughs> of giggling during a performance when that's not entirely what the script requires? Who Is that you, who indelicate? Who are you saying this to? I'm just... Who are well, you saying this to? Well, Have I've heard it I've might been happen. Reported. I've been reported. <laughs> David Tennant does a podcast with Is a Something Else and No Mystery production. Produced by Zoe Edwards. Additional production from Harriet Wells, Sarah Camlet, Steve Ackerman and Georgia Tennant. The sound engineer was Josh Gibbs. The executive producer is Chris Skinner. <laughs>